0: So I don't know about you. I might be the only one here, but I don't respond well in life when people tell me I can't do something. <laughs> when people tell me I'm not able to do something. When people tell maybe us as a church what the church can and can't do, what it can and can't become, I just don't respond well to like limitation, to the idea of that. I'm not At core, a cynic is like, oh, things will never change and it's never gonna, I just, I, I believe in possibility. I believe in what can happen. I just don't respond well. It's caused me to do some foolish things in my life, being told what I can't do. I was 13 years old at my best friend Matt Kreitzer's house. We had some woods behind his house. I don't know why, but we were out in the woods uh, kind of walking around one day, and there was this old fence. I don't know how long it had been there. It's old metal fence. It was like kind of mostly toppled. It's about this high, and I made the comment. It's kind of about the size of a hurdle. And Matt looked at me and was like, you can't jump over that. I was 13, so I backed up in the woods. I went running, I jumped. Turned out Matt was right. I couldn't clear the uh, fence. I actually mangled my hand, got to go to the ER, still have a scar uh, here today, Uh, got a tetanus shot and some stitches, and I still think about that fence, and I think I could have made it if, uh, (laughs) if I just, you know, run a little harder. As people, as human beings, we don't like being told that there's things we just can't do. We're not able to, we can't accomplish it. Many of the technological marvels that exist in the world are because human beings hit a limit, and we're like, we're not gonna settle for that. We're gonna push through, we're gonna find a way. Human beings, by definition, we don't like being told what we can't or are not able to do. And that's true of you, that's true of me, that's true of us. And I need you to be in touch with that place in you today. Because the Bible is going to confront it this morning. An amazingly accomplished person, the Apostle Paul wrote the words we're about to look at from Romans 7. And it is about that something that lies at the core of all human beings is our basic brokenness and our limitations and our inability to fix it. And I'm going to tell you, if you really listen to this, going to part of you going, I don't really like this. And I actually don't know that I want it to be true. I don't even know that I believe it is true because I accomplish things. Mm-hmm. And I know you do. But the gospel, the good news, the greatest love story in the world doesn't begin with what we can do. It begins with what we are not able to do and how God meets us in our brokenness. And so I invite you to listen today and to consider today, as much as we might resist this message, as countercultural as it is, and what good news it might have to say to each of us. (laughs) We're using the lectionary this summer um, as someone said, after 8:15, there's no way you choose to preach on Romans 7 if you don't have to. But um, this is what we're assigned by the church, and it's really important message from Romans 7, verses 15 to 25. Invite like you to listen to God's word to us today. Paul writes, "I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good." But in fact, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want... It is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind. Making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray no matter who we are, how we gather and worship today, what thoughts, what beliefs, what questions, what opinions, that all of us would experience your gospel, your good news today. And it would change us forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So before we actually get to the words that Paul writes, I just want us to kind of admire as a leader the unbelievable vulnerability and honesty that he shows here. We don't have many leaders like this in the world today who are sitting there and going, there is something broken in me. Paul was one of the, the great, maybe the great true uh, leader of the, of the early church. And yet he is writing to the Christians in Rome going, there's something broken in me. And he's not doing one of those things where it's like, you know, I used to struggle with that. and Here's how I kind of worked my way out of it. Maybe you could do it like me. He's saying there is almost a war going on within me. What I want to do, I can't keep doing it. Even though I know it's right. No, this year I really mean it. And there's things that I know are wrong. Sin, temptation that I continue to fall into, that I continue to give into. Knowledge isn't enough. White knuckling it and determining isn't enough. I cannot live the kind of life that God calls me to live there's something more broken. And when you look at what he's talking about the mind, it even actually kind of goes deeper than that. Cause he's also saying that uh, when we look at our minds, not truly understanding uh, what it is God wants us to do, think about what that means. He's going, you, it's not even that we can't do what's right. We don't even know what's truly right. Have you ever had that happen to you before? When you think you're doing the right thing and then you look back 10 years later, and you're like, oh, it probably wasn't the right thing. I wish I would said that differently. I wish I would phrased that differently. I wish I had approached that differently. I thought, government policies do that all the time, right? It's like, no matter which party, it's like, we did this thinking it was the right thing, and then 10 years later, there are all these unintended consequences. We change, even in our understanding of what right might be. As he says, we see in a mirror dimly. I'm kind of lost in this thing. This isn't just like some theoretical academic exercise for Paul. He's writing about the story of his life. He's writing from his lived experience. Paul wasn't somebody who couldn't accomplish stuff, and he's now making a cop-out, an excuse for it. Paul was uh, a Pharisee before his conversion to Christianity. And if that term is unfamiliar to me, that means that he uh, became one of the most powerful, most celebrated leaders uh, in Judaism at his time. He was from Tarsus, which is in modern day Turkey. He would have been the guy that was speaking at all the graduations. He would have been the one who was picked to uh, be on all the awards. And uh, he was kind of the best of the best. He was recognized in that. He worked his way up through his abilities, through his writing, through his mind, through his desire to follow God. And he eventually became one of the very small members of the ruling uh, council, the rulers uh, of Judaism, living in Jerusalem. Paul was amazingly disciplined and accomplished. He was amazingly smart. He was kind of a celebrity at the time. Paul would have been, before his conversion to Christianity, Paul would have been the kind of guy walking down the street that Jewish parents would have looked at their children saying, if you work really hard someday, maybe you could be like him. And what's incredible, and I want us to just appreciate this for a minute, is that when Paul converts to christianity it revolutionizes his whole sense of being and what i mean by that i'm going to use and this is going to shock you guys a sports analogy here for a second (laughs) before his conversion paul was like the best player on his team he's like the captain and the best player on his team and he knew how to exceed and uh, excel and everyone else knew how he would excel but what's amazing is that when he converts to christianity when he encounters jesus on the road to Damascus, he doesn't just take the same mindset and apply it to a new religion. He doesn't sit there and go, oh, well, I was excelling on this team and the problem was I was on the wrong team, so now I'm gonna like, be the star player on this team over here. I just kinda had the wrong system of belief, but I'm gonna approach it the same way. He goes, man, I thought I was doing the right thing and I realize now it was wrong. Who's to say that I'm not living the same way now? just with a different framework. There's something more broken in me than just working it and being accomplished. And I can't fix it myself. The gospel doesn't start with what we can do. It starts with how God meets us and what we can't do. He's saying, I can't fix it and neither can you. Now, I know that for a lot of us right now, we're going, I don't like that. I don't agree with it. I don't think it's not, not inspiring. I don't like stories like that. I like the stories of what I can do, what we can do, what we can, I don't like being told what I can't do. I don't either. I've just gone through, in our family, a cultural moment uh, where we celebrate accomplishment as our oldest daughter has graduated from high school. Some of you guys um, have done that. We've just gone through graduation. Uh, you know this with someone you love. It's this great celebration of accomplishment, and it should be, it's a great thing. Um, There's all the feels in it, there's proud your pride your pride, you're 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 proud, you're sad, you realize things are changing. But in the midst of that, there were some things said in graduation that I was like, come on. You don't actually think that's true, right? He's like, look at what you guys have accomplished and you should be proud of it. And I was like, yeah, you should be proud of it. It's great, you know, I've got the tears flowing and stuff. And then sitting there, somebody kind of made the reference. They were like, you know, and there's nothing you can't solve that you set your minds to. (laughs) Come on. Really? You're going to put that burden on them? Now I get, and I, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't want to be just like uh, 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 Debbie Downer here. That, that there's there's things that I think that younger generations are going to accomplish. I think they're diseases that we now are plagued by that they might cure. I hope that they can figure out the climate crisis and what's going on. Is I mean, I think there's real things and uh, that, that that hopefully we can do. But how about like let's just start with human greed? Are they going to solve that? What about selfishness? and self-centeredness or the desire of one person to dominate another, are they gonna solve that? No, they're not. You're like, Thomas, that's not nice. That's not an inspiring, well, maybe this is why I've never been invited to speak at a graduation. (laughs) But whether you like it or not, it's true. Their root causes of brokenness in the world that lie within us that no generation has ever just fixed. And I don't want my daughter's generation being told they're the ones who can do it because they can't. None of us can. There is something more profoundly broken about us than we can just Work it out. That's what Paul is saying. And what he is adding at the end is that that is not depressing. That is not bad. That is not something we should feel shame about. That is not something that we should hide and project how amazing we are. That actually, that's where the story of the gospel begins that God sees the brokenness in us and around us and in God's love in Jesus, meets us there and stands in the gap that we need. Paul's saying that, that, that actually, the word he uses in that last verse is he, God rescues us from this sense of living behind these false platitudes, just like, well, you can do anything. Paul's going, no, there's a better way. You don't have to live behind that kind of, that sort of idea. There's a better way of being to be rescued. And so in the few minutes I have left, I wanna just take a, a second in three ways to talk about it in a very practical way. What does it mean to be rescued? What does the gospel rescue us rather than this works righteous way of being? And the first thing that I think significant difference that it makes in our life, the uniqueness of Christianity and of the gospel is this. The first thing that it makes is it actually allows us to have healthy spiritual lives in connection with God. There's no other way. And here's what I mean by that. There's kind of two options in the world for how we live in relation with God. If you believe in a higher power, spirituality, God, whatever it is, there's kind of two options. The first option, which is very popular right now, is like this benign force of abstract love in the universe, right? So I, well, I just think there's love and I think love's supposed to be what it is and I think we're just supposed to love and, and it's kind of like the graduation speeches. You hear it and you're like, oh, I like that. That makes me feel good. It, but the problem with that kind of toothless, amorphous spirituality is it doesn't have any push to it. It can't handle injustice. It can't handle hatred. It can't handle brokenness. God can't push back in that spirituality. And so we just sort of handle the nasty stuff ourselves and it's just like, well, it's just love. It's not a faith worth following, friends. Not over time. And if you believe that God has something more to say, God has uh, accountability for the injustice of this world, then you have to move to the second option, which is religion. And what religion teaches us is, okay, well, you better be good enough. You better pray enough. You better better, uh, do enough good stuff. You better give enough money away. You better share enough. You better be generous enough. You better be kind enough. And that leaves you with the anxiety of like, well, how good do I have to be? If it's not just this amorphous spirituality that floats around in the universe, if it's stronger than that, how good do I have to be? And there's no peace in that. Here's how the gospel works. Some of you have heard me teach a Bible study. I do have heard me say this before, but act interested still, okay? (laughs) Okay. When I was my last year of seminary, I took a course uh, called Men in Ministry. It was taught by a guy named Bill Harkins, and I signed up for that class. And uh, I, told it was, I was told it was an amazing class, and so I, I decided to, to get involved with it. And um, when I walked in the first day, it was like eight guys and then Dr. Harkins. And while we were there, he, he looked at us from the very beginning. And he goes, hey, I just want you to know every single one of you today is going to make an A in this class. I was like, what? He goes, you're gonna, every, every one of you, you're going to make an A in this class. And he goes, I, I, he goes, I've been teaching this for years. I've never not given an A. You're going to make an A. I'm just telling you now, you're going to make an A. So he says, well, um, if you're going to make an A, I, I remember thinking, well, then I'm, this is great. I got one class I don't really have to work in this semester. And he said, the reason for that is I actually want you to engage this material for what this material is because you guys are going into vocational ministry. And there are certain things you need to know about men who are in vocational ministry that will sink you if you don't deal with it. Number one is, there is a heightened, even beyond a regular culture, loneliness that goes with ministry. And you need to know that. And if any of you are sitting there going, well, why would pastors be lonely? We'll talk later. But it's a unique place to be. We're kind of allowed to be a real person, but not really. And there's a loneliness that goes with that. There is a um, epidemic he was talking about of, of, of being in bad shape and bad health of, of, of obesity and about the health things that come with that. And he said, you need to know that. Statistically, this is some of what happens. There's issues of addiction that are far heightened beyond um, a, a lot of other men and parts of society. You need to know this. And we're going to deal with this in this class head on. And I can tell you over the course of that semester, I worked harder in that class than in any other class and I knew I already had an A. But the material was so life-giving and transforming that I didn't want to not read. And I just need you to know, that's not how I worked in a lot of my other classes. (laughs) Which some of you are going, that explains it. (laughs) Christianity works like that. God's not this amorphous feeling of love. God has accountability for the pain and the injustice in this world. But on the other hand, what we see is that God doesn't make us clear some spiritual hurdle to be good enough. God meets us in our brokenness. God meets us in our pain. And in that place showers us with cycles of grace that we're forgiven. And that the beauty of that should never fade in any of our lives. It reconciles us as nothing else can to the grace of God. That's number one. Second thing that it does is it also from that grace, it allows us to have cycles of grace with ourselves. It allows us to live with ourselves in a very particular way. And here's what I mean by that. Um, One of the things that the Apostle Paul had to deal with is um, the the Apostle Paul uh, had to deal with was um, a sense for himself of um, his past. There was When you read this passage, you can feel his discomfort. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I want to do good, but I can't do good, and the good I want to do, I don't do, and the bad things I still do, and the evil I do. There's all of this stuff. You can feel the tension in him, which we can relate to. And you can also think about it in terms of um, uh, how the Apostle Paul was living in his life with... Um, His past. There's all kinds of things that can cause us to not have peace with ourselves, to live well with ourselves. If I ask you to think about it, right, and think about this. Paul says, you know, the the things I want to do, I don't do. What are the things in your life that you know you should have done that you haven't? How has that hurt people? How has that taken away from the livelihood of others in this world? Or what are the things that you knew were wrong and you continue to give into it that has caused hurt? Causes shame, causes guilt, causes a burden to be on us. Causes us to have a lack of peace. And there's a phrase that I hear in our society right now. I don't know if you guys have heard this a lot. People say, what we need to learn to do is we gotta learn to forgive ourselves. You ever heard that before? What we need to learn is to be kinder and to forgive ourselves. And I get that. It's just the way culturally we talk about it is not possible. Because you can't be the source and the recipient of forgiveness. It's, it, it's not gonna give you peace. If you're like, oh, I choose to forgive myself, and that's all it is, there's something that's gonna be lacking in that. You can't be both the source of forgiveness and the recipient. The way the Bible talks about forgiveness and finding peace in that is, uh, is through economic language. Okay, And what the Bible says is that when we harm another, when we fail to do what's right or we do what's wrong, we, in, in economics, it's like we incur a debt to them. And when you think about having a debt, you don't get to forgive your own debt. Right? If you have credit card debt right now, you can't call Discover or American Express and be like, I know that there's this bill. I have chosen to forgive my own debt. So I'm no longer paying it. You can't, if you have a mortgage, you can't contact the bank and go, I've forgiven myself. I'm no longer going to make mortgage payments. I've forgiven my own debt. You can't be the source of it and the recipient of it. There has to be something outside of you. And you might have harmed people and they have not come to a point of forgiving you. And that can be really hard and really debilitating. But the gospel says that forgiveness begins with the fact God has forgiven us. And that we can look at the things that we have done wrong or the good things that we have failed to do. And that God meets us in that and says, you can experience forgiveness. It's not that we forgive ourselves, but we can accept the forgiveness that God does give us. And so we don't have to live under shame or burden. Even if we're trying to make it up to somebody else, we can be motivated by something different than guilt, the gospel is the only message that can allow us to have that kind of freedom within ourselves. And you can hear it in Paul. What am I going to do? I'm at war with myself, the members of my body. I want to do good. I can. not And then you hear, but it's in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Do you feel that calm that comes over the text? And last, allows us to live in a relationship with God that's unique. It allows us to live with ourselves. But lastly, it allows us to live with others cycles of grace that we've received from God that we can then extend to those around us. And I'm gonna use a story to end this. And it's a story from marriage, okay? But if you're not married, I don't want you to tune out. If you're single, if you're divorced, if you're a widow, widower, whatever, I, I want you to stick with me, because this applies to friendship just as much, it applies to living in a family just as much. Marriage is just the outer part of this story, okay? But when Beth and I had been married for a few years, long enough to know that not every day of marriage was perfection, for her uh, at least. (laughs) For me it was. (laughs) We decided to ask a couple who was older than us, who had been married for a while, out to dinner we didn't weren't trying to say that they had the perfect marriage but they had the kind they actually been married about as long as we have now so we're at that phase which is good to think about now um, and we just said we just you know we see things in your marriage that I, I I come from a family where there was divorce and you know I we just love to learn how, how you cultivate a healthy marriage what does that look like which I highly recommend people to do and my expectation was they were gonna teach us what to do Right. Well, you know, it's like go on a date every couple of weeks and uh, handle your money this way, or or, or um, be in a small group, or pray together. Well, I was ready for the rules. Right? If you do this, it equals a great marriage. And they told us that stuff. They were like, here's how you do this, and we think about this way, and we're intentional about this, and we're writing this down. And then they go, but in the end, you also have to understand that deeper connection and intimacy, it comes through learning how to live in cycles of grace with each other. And we're like, well, I, don't, I don't know what that means, right? I don't know how you do that. And they're like, well, what it means is this, is that you can't make the mistake of thinking, if I follow the right rules in my marriage, every day is just moving up into the right. Because it's written in the Bible that the things I wanna do, I'm gonna fail to do. And the things that I don't want to do, I'm going to do. And that over time in any relationship, friendship, family, but in marriage in this case, you're going to hurt each other. In small ways and in big ways. You're going to hurt each other. And you're going to have to learn what it is to look at the person you love and have hurt and say, I ask for your forgiveness in this. And you're going to know the joy of when that person looks at you despite the pain and says, I release you from that debt. I forgive you. And you're going to know what it's like when the person you love hurts you. And you have to choose, do you forgive them of that pain or not? And they're like, when you live in cycles of grace because God has forgiven us and we then extend it to each other, it actually forms a deeper connection than just following the rules. They said our marriage doesn't just work like this. It kind of does this. And I think over time it's moving in a good direction. But like we're still having the same fight we basically had for 25 years. It's just the circumstances change. And then sometimes we have the fight again, it's like, oh, I did it again. And last time I said I'm gonna change, for real. That's what it means, but as we forgive each other, grace abounds and joy abounds and connection abounds. And I remember listening to them going, that is pathetic. (laughs) That is so pathetic. And I've now been married long enough to know it's true. And so any baptism we do of a child, if you listen, and the words I always say to parents as so though we're going to baptize their child, we say to them, it's the stories you tell that's going to form your child. It's the ways you pray with them. It's the songs that you sing. And it's the way that they see love and forgiveness in your marriage that they'll come to know what love and grace look like themselves you live in cycles of grace because God has met you and your incompleteness and you extend that grace and forgiveness to others Paul's saying it rescues us to a whole different way of living of connecting with God of connecting to ourselves and of connecting to others I don't like being told I can't accomplish things I'm probably not the only one in this room I don't gravitate to those stories But the gospel of love doesn't start with what we can do. It starts with the acknowledgement of what we can't. And God meets us in our need and showers us with grace upon grace upon grace and then invites us to live that way with others. And Paul says that's what life truly looks like, something beautiful. I wanna end with this. Tim Keller, who passed away recently, talked about this passage of scripture and he gave this great definition that I close with of the gospel. Some of you have heard it before. He said the good news, the gospel is this. We are more broken than we ever dare admit. And we are more loved than we ever dare imagine. May the love of God wash over you today. May you know your worth. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, may your grace be real to us and may it flow from us through others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.